I'm Elena. And this is History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Thanks for joining us. We've just been so busy lately. We, we have. Yeah, I mean, we never have time to go out, so it's always nice to just, like, take a moment to curl up at home and, like, find a movie. Maybe yeah. something's on TCM. Yeah. Like, like Disney Vault Night? Oh yeah, that was this week or last week. That was that was recent. Yeah, it's a it's a great way to you know spend the evening. Mm-hmm. Well, the early morning because TCM's a jerk and they don't start it till like eight o'clock at night. <laughs> and it goes to like five a.m. Only if you want to watch the whole block. I do. Okay. I do. <laughs> but I never get to. Are you excited about this week's topic? What is this week's topic? Basically, Disney Vault Night. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, we are going to be talking about Walt Disney live action movies. Oh, and, I mean, it, it's uh, not what they're known for. Not really. But if you take a look at like the whole history, there's a lot more of them than oh, there yeah. are oh, yeah. products of Walt Disney Animation Studios. Well, and we're going to be focusing more on like the, the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of think this might end up being a bit of a series at some point. Well, we ran out of Florida parks, so. <laughs> well, I got to like certain amount of research, and I was like, I need to stop now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made a lot, and like people definitely think about like the live action movies that have come out like in the past decade. Your pirates, Maleficent, your Cinderella. Your... Post-acquisition Marvel Studios. Maybe if you really think about it, you, you include like, you know, Mighty Ducks and <laughs> uh, movies of the 90s that were live action that were very much a part of like our childhood. Mm-hmm. But I feel like a lot of people just kind of forget about this aspect of the company. Yeah. You can't forget about Dre. And by Dre, I mean Annette Funicello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't get to talk about her in this episode like at all. <laughs> Like, there's one fact I get to tell you. That's why there has to be a part two, so I can talk about Nefu Nutello and Haley Mills. The sacrifices we make. From 1950 mm-hmm. to now, there's 250 live-action <laughs> movies from Walt Disney Pictures. All right, this is the show now. Forget, <laughs> forget every strike, forget every disaster. This is the show. 250. over. Like, I stopped counting after a while. Because <laughs> it started like blurring. This does not include hybrid films, so things that are live action and animation. So you're you're protecting us from talking about the absurdly racist song of the South. Oh, we're gonna talk about that actually, but that so counts. close, so close. <laughs> um, it does not include Disney Channel original movies. Mm-hmm. And one thing to know is like after the 1980s, a lot of the movies were like co-productions with other studios and various things too. Mm-hmm. But before then, it was very much like just Disney. I feel like it's really important to understand how they kind of got to making live action movies mm-hmm. and kind of the development. We're not going to get was... a lot of into the animation stuff, but kind of what was going on in the decade before live action movies so came about for them. So to talk about the 50s, we need to talk about the 40s. Talk a little bit about the 30s, too, I guess, actually, too. Um, so, 1934 is when production of Snow White started. That's what mm-hmm. really, like, kicked off Walt Disney Pictures. Right. The first, first feature-length animated film. Yes. Now, by 1939, it was the highest-grossing film of the time. Uh, Snow White uh, financed construction of the 
uh, Disney Studio in Burbank. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they were making other animated shorts and full-length films throughout the 40s. And they did very well. Yeah. I mean, Pinocchio's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> 40s weren't a great time for my Disney films, but sure. Um, <laughs> the first five films are so experimental and vibrant, and each one's a completely different animal from the others. Yeah, and I can't s- handle a few of those animal pictures. <laughs> The tears they bring. (laughs) But one thing that happened around this time was World War II. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing we may have mentioned at some point when Walt came up in other Disney episodes, I don't know if we mentioned this. Eventually, we're going to have done a Walt Disney person episode. We have now. By editing together chunks (laughs) of all the other episodes. We've been doing this for two years. I can't remember what was an episode and what was just part of other episodes at this point. But during World War II, you had animators being drafted into the war. Mm-hmm. So they were down a lot of staff. Uh, and those that were left were busy working on not only Disney projects, but government commissioned animation training films and propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a huge thing they were doing. If, if you can track those down, they are uh, they're a treat. They're a trip. They're... There is a lot of them on YouTube. Yeah. A lot of them are on YouTube. You'll never know that Donald Duck hated Germans so much. <laughs> well, and they made films for every branch of the U.S. military and government. Um, 90% of animators that were working were working on these films. And they created 68 hours worth of film. Mm-hmm. And often it needed to be done really quickly. Like the Navy asked for like 90 thousand feet of film in three months they were used is that how the navy quantifies films by the foot well like what they wanted equaled that much all right all right they were like making like twenty seven thousand in a normal year (laughs) this is three times the amount goodness so they were really busy Mm -hmm. so and through the 40s we got like six full-length animated movies And then there were nine that were considered hybrids. So they used live action and animation. Walt was always interested in live action film. Some of his earliest work, the Alice comedies, were hybrid pieces. This is something I didn't know about until we went to that uh, MSI exhibit. Yeah. But but these were uh, films where he would film a little girl playing Alice in an animated world all around her. Yeah. It's like, like when Eddie goes to Toontown, but like the first experiment that would eventually lead us to that path. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is something he did from the start, and a lot of times it gets overlooked because people think, oh, Mickey Mouse, that was his start. Mm-hmm. Well, like, the Alice comedies were right around the same time as when he Well before. Well like, before. But e- like when even he... before Oswald. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they were black and white, very, like, silent... Mm-hmm. Just short, like what they, like five minutes long or something, I would yeah. say, stuff. He always valued the importance of live action films. And, you know, there was a time to tell stories with animation and there was a time to use, like, people mm-hmm. because of which way you can better tell the story and connect with the audience. He's made several statements about that yeah. type of work. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Yeah. But it's something that I feel like often gets overlooked, Mm -hmm. that live action was important to him. One thing I think is kind of interesting is to look at, like, why films were being made, how they were being made here. Would the amount of hybrid films, so live action animation, would that 
amount of happened if they weren't short on animators because of the war right. and because of um, these government commissioned projects they were doing. If they would, had more animators on hand, would the the dancing lady from Three Caballeros have, have been, been a, a cartoon dancing yeah. lady? I don't have an answer for that, but it's something I wonder. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, how would that affect it? I mean, we also had, like, the animator strike of 1941 going mm-hmm, on. So there mm-hmm. was, like, certain things there, too, where, like, animators weren't working as much. Well, I mean, they were trying to. They, they were just, trying. Uh... There, there are issues, and that's that's a whole other episode in itself as well. One thing as during the animator strike, mm-hmm. something that came out, is uh, a film called The Reluctant Dragon. Some dragons. They... And you've seen this. I have. It I, was on a, a TCM vault night. I missed that night, but I have watched it on YouTube. It is there. <laughs> um, so it's a really weird film. Right. Um, it, it's about this uh, guy. I think he's playing himself. Whether he is or not, he's played a, a by... A version of himself. He's played by, or perhaps is, a... a well-known comedian of the time, like mm-hmm. the sort of guy that, that did the uh, variety show circuit in the early 40s. Yes. And he uh, reads the storybook and thinks, this ought to be a picture. I know just uh, who to do it. And he goes to the Walt Disney lot. Well, because his wife makes him. He's yeah. like, no, no, no. I don't. <laughs> Walt's too busy. This is this. And she's like, no, you should go. And I'd like to point out that the opening scene is him in a pool, like messing with his rifle. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's really weird. Also, he does not seem to have the rights to sell the story of the reluctant. No, it's dragon. just like a book he came across. Like, oh, this would make a good movie. He just really wants to pitch on someone else's behalf. But yeah, so he ends up going to the studio. And he gets a walking tour from a Boy Scout, and most of the film is just a studio tour. It's like an infomercial for the studio. This dude is trespassing into <laughs> everything that they are doing, all these secret <laughs> projects, and everyone is welcoming him with open arms mm-hmm. and explaining what they do and stopping their precious work, whether it's the orchestra, the voice recordings. The, the ink and paint girls. Uh-huh, and it just... And then at one point, it... It switches to Technicolor mm-hmm. um, because we're talking about like paint and stuff. So we have to like change so we can see what that looks like. And eventually. Take that Wizard of Oz who <laughs> did the same thing two years earlier. Never mind. It's a bad joke. Eventually he gets to Walt and he's like, oh, oh, I want to talk about this thing with you. But here's all these things I've collected along my journey. And oh, I kind of stole that. But these other things were given to me. But then Walt's like, oh, but we're going to screen this film. We'll talk about it later. And then it's the cartoon of the reluctant dragon. <laughs> it's very odd. Yeah. It takes an hour <laughs> and eight minutes to get to the cartoon. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that this came out during that strike, right? So yeah. It, it's portraying the, this utopian hunky-dory vision mm-hmm. where everybody at, at this magical film lot is is happy and, and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when really there's a picket line and people are falling asleep at their desks because they can't afford to eat at the company canteen. Yeah. Uh, and this film did not do well no. at all. First off, because of the strike, people mm-hmm. made sure to make it known like, don't go see this film. It, it is was... lies. Well, in addition to like... And it's a bizarre idea for a movie. Like, you are paying to be advertised to. Yeah. and well, in, Far in, more than in most movies. In that live action stu- stuff, there's also like multiple short cartoons pieced within. Mm-hmm. It's very odd 
it reminds me so much of what would end up on Disneyland or the um the wonderful world of color. Right. Like those Disney TV shows that very much went behind the scenes of the parks, of mm-hmm. movies and all that. That's what this was. And this is way before those existed. But you also got to see the first pre-production images of Bambi before I think that movie was even announced. They they had Bambi cells in this. Like I get the concept that they're trying to show like the movie magic and in a way it's cool. You know, people were still expecting Snow White that came mm. out. It's not good filmmaking. Years. It is good history though. It's good history. Yes. Yeah. But that was one of Kind of the big jumps into kind of live action, I guess. Yeah, what a Um, jump it was. More hybrids happened during this time, and we do need to talk a little bit about Song of the South. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Song of the South was made in 1946. It is a hybrid film that Disney really does not want to talk about anymore. Unless you're on Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain's okay. We can talk about Splash Mountain. How is that going to pass? But let's not talk about anything else with it. Now, if you're not familiar with Song of the South... It is a film that takes place during the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War, and is about a boy who is visiting his grandmother's plantation in the South and mm-hmm. befriends Uncle Remus, who tells him tales and mm-hmm. stories. It's known for being really racist and offensive and a really bad take on... On Reconstruction. Reconstruction. <laughs> like, the, the story goes that... Walt was really excited to tell a story with American folklore. He'd done all these European fairy tales, Mm -hmm. uh, American folklore, especially Southern American folklore. And like uh, the NAACP reached out. Uh, A lot of other uh, uh, black advocacy groups were like, you want to do this? Okay, we are here to help you do it right. Rule number one, do not show slaves being happy. Do not make plantation life look like a warm, cheery thing. Mm -hmm. That's like... Mm. But Walt Disney was always a guy that followed his own gut. And up to this point, he'd made a career on proving people wrong, that his instincts were the only instincts that mattered. And he turned out a remarkably racist movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be after, when they're not slaves. But it's it's too close. It's really not clear. It's not clear. And there's a lot of... um, just chosen vocabulary and things mm-hmm. that they are do in the script that make things very awkward nowadays. One thing that I was reading, and I I haven't found other sources that kind of state this, but that um, the part of Uncle Remus was one of the, like, sometimes considered one of the first parts for an African-American in the time that wasn't just, like, a comedic mm-hmm. side part. Not like The Littlest Rebel featuring Shirley yeah. Temple. Like, this was kind of the first, like, That's a racist lead movie. taken seriously mm-hmm. more so thing as a character who is a part of the story. Right. I've only seen this in one place. I haven't seen, like, other things that also kind of compare this and what mm-hmm. other movies might have existed beforehand and all that. But I thought that was kind of an, one interesting fact. Yeah. That, like... Maybe we were trying to do something good. We just really, 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 really missed it. <laughs> missed it a lot. The the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We shot for the moon and we are on Pluto. <laughs> and we landed in the sun. We're incinerated. <laughs> Everything just <laughs> not work. I wanted to talk a little bit about the guy who did play Uncle Remus, though. Mm-hmm. James Basket. Um, was actually in really poor health during filming. Oh, no. Um, and he died, actually... Um, Two years later, oh, he he ended up in poor health throughout those two years. Now he originally auditioned 
um, just for a small voice part of one of the animals in the stories he tells mm-hmm. in the animated section. But Walt Disney actually hired him on the spot to play Uncle Remus. Mm-hmm. He was just really liked him, was impressed with him. He's got a great face for it. Like, Yeah. So he, he played Uncle Remus and he voiced Br'er Fox and um, I guess in one scene did Br'er Rabbit as well. Um, Couldn't get the, the real rabbit in that day? Well, so one thing with this film is they were really over budget. <laughs> which So the one scene actually where he, he sings a song, I can't remember what it is because here's the thing. He sings they a never of songs. released this. <laughs> they never released it on home video. Is Somehow it? I have seen this. I don't know where I saw it, but I have seen it. They lost the key to that part of the Disney vault. Uh, the, they didn't release it to home video, but they have re released it to theaters a few times over the years. <laughs> They, like, stopped doing that in the 80s, but they did do that. In the 80s? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, one of the scenes, the marks were off and, like, things were wrong. And they had, like, no money left. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they ended up doing was it's it's a scene where it's a really close-up of Uncle Remus singing. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up, like, shooting that really close and then doing, like, the animation behind him. It's a very, like, famous shot. Totally not what they were planning to do. Yeah, they're they're it was supposed to be big, open, lots of stuff, and then they were like, "We do not have that time. We do not have that money." So just fill the frame, yeah. with, with this guy's face, and it ends up being like, because this guy does have like he's, he's so such warm a cheery, and wonderful guy. Like you just are like, oh, he just is the epitome of like he makes you believe that slavery maybe wasn't that bad. I was gonna say the epitome of like happy grandpa. He's such a happy grandpa. <laughs> Now, he, in uh, 1948, did receive an honorary Oscar for his performance. Mm -hmm. And it made him the first African-American male actor to win an Oscar. Uh Uh-huh. Which I feel like not many people know. I feel like I did not know that. I did not know that. I was like, oh. I learned something today. We can skip to the end. That's what I learned. Um, One thing to know about this is that in uh, 1945, so like before the movie came out, uh, they started running a newspaper comic strip called Walt Disney Presents Uncle Remus and his tales of Br'er Rabbit. And this continued until 1972. Nice. Why? Why? It was really popular somehow. So is Donald Duck. I know. You could just run more Donald Duck. And so, like, when it started, it was to, like, promote the movie, mm-hmm. you know, and, like, expand on these tales. And then it just kept going and kept <laughs> going. And I was very... Shocked, especially because in 1972 is when they were starting to like be like, "Ugh, this is kind of racist. We should maybe not." There was backlash in 1946 about how racist this was. Well, yeah, but they like, I yeah. mean, they like re-released it a few times, and then we got to like the 70s, 80s. We were like, "Last time, we're done. Okay." <laughs> but starting to segue more into our live action, um. Two of the the stars of this film mm-hmm. uh, that played the two children, Bobby Drisc- Driscoll and uh, Luana Pattern, they played the like two little kids. They were like mm-hmm. eight and nine years old at the time. They were the first two actors uh, Disney put under contract. Mm-hmm. They will appear many times because one thing we learn with live action films is that people appear forever. <laughs> we talked about this in the Golden Age of Hollywood, but this is the end of the the studio system mm-hmm. like contracts are starting to be phased out but apparently not on this lot because like these people just keep coming back well, it and, must have been a legal thing 
they definitely still used contracts for quite a while at Disney, and it's also just like the we like you, we keep hiring you, we have a niche here, Mm -hmm. um, which is still stuff you see nowadays with like the Disney Channel, yeah, films they make. They still very much like they've got like a star making engine. Yeah, you get uh, uh, one of their tween sitcoms, and then you do like three original movies. Yeah, and then suddenly you have a top forty album, and you. I don't know what Miley Cyrus is up to, but I'm here for it. Uh, Well, and it seems like crazy, but that's exactly what it was then, too. Except it was through movies and then eventually through the Mickey Mouse Club and their TV shows. Mm -hmm. But that's what it was then. Those two kids in 1949 ended up in So Dear My Heart, um, which is like (laughs) often considered a sequel to... Uh, Song of the South, but, like, not because they play different characters and it's a different story, but I guess it's, like, really connected? I don't... I haven't seen it, so I don't really get why it's a sequel. You have to understand the the crossover multiverse. (laughs) My universal Uncle Remus theory. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this film, though, was actually supposed to be fully live action. Mm -hmm. Walt wanted this to be live action, Um, but he was pressured by others into making it a hybrid. People who see the Disney picture want to see the cartoons. Yes. And that, well, we've been doing this, and this is good, and we should keep doing it, and if it's going to be connected to this, and all of it. So it ended up being a hybrid, but that could have been the first live-action film. Uh, So the first actual live-action complete uh, came in 1950, and that was Treasure Island. Yeah, har har har. Now, at this time, Disney had a lot of money in British banks. (laughs) I don't know if this is what you're implying, but that sounds like tax evasion. <laughs> it sounds a lot like tax evasion. Well, it's not the Cayman Islands, but it's an island. It it had been there before World War II. Uh huh. And I believe it was there for like production purposes that they wanted to get involved with over there. Sure, sure. Who knows though? Um, but after World War II, there was a lot of changes to taxation laws. Preemptive tax evasion. <laughs> So, like, to remove the money, the studio would have had to pay both British taxes and U.S. taxes. And they had $8.5 million over there, which is, like, $85 million now. So, one quarter of a movie. <laughs> Things are wild. Um, there were certain rules where, like, at the time that, like, in England, films that were being shown there, 45% of them had to be films that were made in England. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, reviving... The economy with right. stuff that was made there. Protectionism in the entertainment industry. Yes. So Walt was like, okay, I'm going to lose all this money to do this. They're also not going to show my films. Like, it'll be harder to get them shown. Why don't we just start a Walt Disney British Films LTD? <laughs> sure. Why not? So that was formed. And instead of making an animation studio, they focused on live action films. And the first was Treasure Island. This was the first of uh, four films to be made with this money. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Treasure Island... They made that stretch. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, like, extra money was added to it. But that's, like, <laughs> it got dispersed. This Treasure Island, others had come before it by other people. Mm-hmm. But this was the first one to be made in color. Ooh. And it had an all-British cast and crew, except for the director and Bobby Driscoll. From Song of the South. Ah, and so dear my heart. There you go. He played Jim. Jim, the, the kid. The, the kid. main character. He played the kid. Yeah. Now, it came out in England one month before the U.S. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it became the sixth most popular release in the UK in 1950. I bet nobody remembers the other five. <laughs> nope. History has shown. Robert Newton portrayed Long John Silver, and his style of pirate would very <laughs> much become, like, the pirate representation. Yeah. The voice used, the style used, the the look, the body language you can see a lot of him in to to fast forward to another product of the own company of the same company Mm -hmm. treasure planet yeah 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 they very much copied well and so robert newton actually uh would continue to play pirates for quite a while and he would go on to do blackbeard for other companies long john silver again um he also was uh bill sykes in the oliver twist movie of the i think 50s or 60s (laughs) yeah or 50s 50s, because, unfortunately, he died of a heart attack in 1956. Oh, wow. Uh, he, he made the most of it for those six years, though. Yeah. He, he like, made a ton of stuff. He um, rode that parrot to, to immortality. This was his thing. Mm-hmm. It's a great performance in a pretty good film. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful performance. <laughs> Treasure Island was also one of the first Disney movies to be shown on TV, And it really would not be the last. (laughs) Not by a mile. Uh, A trend that happens is uh, when the Disneyland show started, they would show movies in several parts. Mm -hmm. Um, Serialize them. Yes. This will happen with a lot. And it gets a little interesting at some point in the future, which we will talk about. Now, in 1975, uh, Treasure Island was actually re-released, and they had to submit it to the MPAA for rating. Because that existed now. Yep. Uh, it gave it a PG rating, which at this time, Disney was like, only G movies. That's all we make. <laughs> so they cut nine minutes of the film. So I'm guessing they cut the part where the kid is sitting at the crow's nest with a gun. <laughs> and the pirate slowly comes up and the kid's like freaking out because he thinks he's going to have to shoot this guy. Probably not because in 1975, kids could still have guns. Like, I mean, kids didn't have guns, but guns, yeah. Okay, all right, all right. That's probably not what they I'm just saying, that was a really dark part, and darker than probably anything else they put out for 30 years. Maybe. There's a lot of murder. Do they ever see, like, a a lady? Is there, like, too much cleavage? There are no women in in Treasure Island. I was like, well, maybe they go to, like, a Portuga-ish place. It's like The Hobbit. There are no No. women. Not in that book. So uh, another thing is that uh, Bobby, who played Jim... Uh, wasn't able to get valid British work permits. Huh. Uh, there were some very strict uh, child labor laws at the time uh, in regards to, like, kids under 13 not being able to work and then, like, what they would give out and mm-hmm. not give out. E- even for acting. Yes. Like, under 13, you could not get a permit to act. Huh. But it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, he and his family were ordered to leave the country. But they were able to stay for six weeks to file an appeal with paperwork and all that. <laughs> so during those six weeks, they shot all of his close-ups. <laughs> all of them. Well, what's he going to do? <laughs> his parents are filling out the forms. He's got time. They were like, okay, and we get this done. So they had a stand-in for him for anything big that they didn't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> because he couldn't come back to the country. <laughs> a film made by, for, and about pirates. <laughs> Yeah. It's a bunch of scalawags. Now, I want to pause and talk about uh, Bobby Driscoll, actually. Mm-hmm. So It's a good Hollywood name, Bobby Driscoll. <laughs> so as I said, he was in Treasure Island, Song of the South, So Dear My Heart. He was also in Melody Time, which was a hybrid film of the t- at the time. 
Uh, he was it's, in, it still is, by the way. That came out at the time. <laughs> uh, he was in a goofy short, and he's also the voice of Peter Pan. Yeah, so yeah. You, you might not be able to picture the guy because they don't really show this Treasure Island very often. But if you imagine Peter Pan's voice, that, that's who this is. Same kid. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Song of the South turned him and Luana uh, into child stars instantly. They were nicknamed the Sweetheart Team. Aww. Uh, She also went on to appear in um, the anthology films of Melody Time, Fun and Fancy Free, uh, and then Johnny Tremaine. Not an anthology film. Not. We'll we'll talk about that one later. Okay, I know you want to. Yes, I love Johnny Tremaine. Um, So he actually won a Juvenile Academy Award for uh, So Dear My Heart. I want them to reinstate that category. Yeah. I miss the juvenile Oscar. Yeah. Uh, He was originally planned to be used in the Robin Hood film that would be made second. Mm Mm-hmm. But that was also using UK money and being filmed overseas. And he was not allowed to go back. (laughs) They were like, oh, man, immigration doesn't like us, so... Not going to be in that film. So I guess our Robin Hood will be a legal adult. No, he wasn't going to be, he was going to be um, like Friar Tuck or something. What? Yeah. He was going to be one of the side characters. Friar Tuck's the one that ought to be like 60. <laughs> they were going to go for like a 12 year old. <laughs> so after leaving Disney, which was when he was a teenager, he ended up having like a really bad case of like acne and like things that made him like not as marketable. <laughs> right. Like it's it's the the child star transition. Yeah. The and, awkward puberty stage that doesn't always work out so well. And he was the first Disney kid to hit that. Yeah. Which yeah. is it's whole other kind of baggage. Yeah. So he ended up not working so much. So he was released from his Disney contract in the late 50s. Had a hard time transitioning out of that sweetheart Disney kid. He found some work on TV shows, appeared here and there. But as I said, after he left Disney, um, he ended up having to, like, switch schools and just had a really hard time adjusting and, like, Mm -hmm. dealing with this past fame and, like, kids. Yeah. You know, got bullied. Uh, He ended up getting into drug use and ended up being sent to a rehabilitation center. And then when he was released, he struggled to find work. Eventually, um, after his parole ended, he ended up uh, in New York City in uh, the mid-1960s and became a part of Andy Warhol's Greenwich Village art community. <laughs> uh, Is that a happy ending? I'm not sure. Well, it it's not the ending. Because oh. in 1968, his body was found by some boys in a deserted building in the East Village. Andy Warhol, collect your boys. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, he had died of heart failure um, from longtime drug abuse. Uh, but he didn't have an ID on him, and no one in the area could ID him. So he was buried in an unmarked grave in New York City's Potter's Field on Hart Island. Oh, And it wasn't... Uh, until 19 months later that his mother actually reached out to Disney uh, because she had been trying to get in touch with him. Because and his those f- royalty checks got to be going somewhere. That or they were just hoping that, like, they would maybe use resources she didn't have. Yeah, yeah. Um, his father was in very bad health hmm. and she was hoping to, like, reunite them before his dad was going to die. And she didn't know it was too late. Yeah. Um, so 
Disney Studios ended up helping. Um, this led to a fingerprint match happening with New York City police records, and the body was claimed. Mm. Now, the death wasn't actually made public for three more years. <sighs> um, Song of the South had a re-release, and that's when uh, reporters were like, oh, we want to catch up and find out what happened to people who were in this film. Turns out most of them are dead. Yep. Yeah. And and that's when the news of, you know, the, the sweetheart. Mm-hmm child actor came out and that's just one of those like oh that's a downer gosh we'll leave that there and uh we'll go on to the second movie that was made which was the uh story of robin hood and his merry men okay these are coming from the the british division yes so like they're clearly doing english projects yeah novels and now a folk hero from from england like stereotypically even yes (laughs) yeah um, and it's also stuff that, like, you, know, you have pirates, you have Robin Hood. Like, these are things, though, that would capture young kids' attention. Yeah. Family adventure, swashbuckling. Yes. 12-year-old boys eat this up. Yes. And girls. And, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Think of yourself as a 1950s marketing executive in Burbank, I California. I know. Yeah. Um, so this film came out in 1951 in the UK and 1952 in the US. It was directed by Ken Anakin, who would direct the third film. He was the chosen one. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, He would direct their third film, The Sword and the Rose, uh, along with another Disney film, The Third Man on the Mountain, Swiss Swiss Family Robinsons. And then he also would do um, The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking in 88 and The Call of the Wild in 1972. (laughs) Robin Hood did extremely well, did so good. Mm-hmm. Um, it starred Richard Todd, who we will see many times again. <laughs> um, but this took for him his career from being like a fourth, fifth credit person to being the star. Bum, um, this kind of made his career. Uh, now, the third film was The Sword and the Rose. Which we just watched we last week. just watched. It is a weird film. Sword and the Rose is the gayest movie I've ever seen, <laughs> at least in the first 15 minutes. Oh, my God. That one scene. It's It opens with, you want to talk about stereotypically British, Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah. Watching a, a wrestling match between his English champions and, and some French uh visitors and the one guy rips the, a shirt off the other one the, the hero who is richard todd uh-huh. is is a commoner captain of the guard and he wrestles uh the duke of buckingham and both of these men are dying to wrestle they are so <laughs> excited and yeah the duke of buckingham played by uh uh the butler in, uh-huh. in the schumacher and uh, uh burton batman films yep I was going to talk about that later, but... As a much younger man, of course. uh, Tears Richard Todd's shirt off, and he's a a fit, tanned, hairy-chested, muscular man. Let's just call that a type in the 1950s. Yes, yes. And then the other character is this, shall we say, confirmed bachelor (laughs) that's advising the princess. It's super gay. And they have some scenes where you're just like... You're not saying what you actually mean because you're both staring at each other and just like yeah I, it's, I was waiting for them to like just the story on, <laughs> sorry children's program the the story on paper is uh Richard Todd and the princess uh overcoming 
their their different stations of birth yes. and, and and marrying. The story on film is Richard Todd being pursued by three people, only one of which is a woman. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was something. It was something. <laughs> yeah, so so let's let's talk about some of the people in it actually. So mm-hmm. yeah, Richard Todd going to be a star. He will be in the next movie we're gonna talk about as well. <laughs> the gal who played Mary Tudor she's she's a hoot because I just love how she's trying to like kill her new f- husband, the King of France, by like drowning him in wine and then making him ride his horse too much. <laughs> and then like, oh no, he died. She feels really guilty when her plan works. <laughs> she is played by Glynis Johns. Uh, she would also be in the next film we're going to talk about. She would, will be the mother in Mary Poppins. So she good. would be originate the role on Broadway of Desiree in A Little Night Music. She was the first person to sing Send in the Clown. Yeah. You can take that to the yeah. bank. Yeah. The actor who played Henry would be in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as along with the next movie we're going to talk about. And he was also in the last movie we talked about. Robin he Hood. ended up being Little John. Instead of casting a really little John. <laughs> Peter Copley, play, who played Sir Edwin, uh, he was in an episode of Doctor Who. He was in the Pyramid of Mars. Oh, who was he? Oh, he was probably he the, was the bad guy. He was Doctor Something. Yeah, I don't remember. definitely the Doctor bad guy. Something, yeah. The, the guy under the sway of Sutek. Or maybe he was the guy that died because of the guy <laughs> under the sway of Sutek. Now, this film was based on an 1898 novel called When Knighthood Was in Flower <laughs> by Charles Major. Uh, now, Lawrence Edward uh, Watkin did the screenplay. Now, he also did Treasure Island, Robin Hood, the next movie we're going to talk about, and like a bajillion others. This was basically a repertory uh, uh, ensemble. Yes. Uh, he also wrote uh, a book called Marty Markham, which would go on to be adapted into the Spin and Marty series. I don't know what that is. Spin and Marty was one of the series that was made uh, and shown during the Mickey Mouse Club. Oh. So like Annette Funicello had her show. Mm-hmm. Spin and Marty was like the other one. Those were like the two <laughs> biggest ones. There were other right. things shown too, but those were like people tuned in for those. Right, they were right. huge. And like Spin and Marty, it was about two kids at the... Uh, Basically, like a horse ranch summer camp. They, they went to horse camp. The the oh, was it the something a corral? Dude ranch? Was it the OK Corral? Probably not. That no, that was famous for one thing. What was it something like that? And they like went on adventures and all kinds of stuff. It was huge. It must have been big to be on the same level as Annette. Yes. Yeah. I love Annette. Um. Now the budget for the Sword and the Rose exceeded Robin Hood, and not do well i'm not that surprised it did not do well in the uk it did not do well here at all (laughs) people over there were like these facts aren't real yeah people over here were like what is this it's dramatically limp yep we only figure out that the duke of buckingham is actually a bad guy for about 10 minutes yeah it's yeah yeah uh so the next film that came was rob roy the highland rogue Ooh. This had the same cast. It was just everyone was the same. And it was about a Scottish clan leader who fought against King George I for Scotland's freedom. It did not do well either. Mm-hmm. Um, it was serialized on Disneyland. Uh, and it was the final film that was released through a partnership with RKO. 
All the films before this were released there. <laughs> After this, films would be released on uh, through Buena Vista, which would be under Disney. It, it was their own distribution, yep. Buena Vista Pictures. Yep. So this was the last of the RKO days. Again, to refer to that episode I did a few months ago, mm-hmm. in part, that's because RKO was going out of business. Yeah. <laughs> the timelines match up, trust me. <laughs> So, so the, the next film that came, which was the first to not be shot in the UK for Disney, uh, live action based, uh, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1954. And I feel like this is the most popular, most known I, live action film. I always forget that it wasn't the first because it's the first US and something in my brain mm-hmm. makes you think, oh, it must be the first. Well, I feel like it's also the most like known. Mm-hmm. It was also the first science fiction film to be shot in Cinescope, which Cinescope is a lens that was used for widescreen movies um, through the 50s to late 60s. So any previous sci-fi was in like four by three Academy ratio? I mean, I think there were some other lenses that maybe did widescreen. I don't know how. I don't know. But Cinescope is the one that they always like plastered on. Cinescope. You know, Technicolor and Cinescope. Yes. It was like big. And it was personally produced by Walt Disney, and it ran way over budget. (laughs) Um, And it's known for its complex filming and reshoots. Now, again, we had Robert Newton. We had Richard Todd. They just moved in with Walt for a few years. (laughs) Always drinking milk right out of the jug. They were gross. Uh, It was the second highest grossing film that year behind White Christmas. (laughs) White Christmas is a great film. Uh, Peter- and much fewer uh, uh, special effects. It, it turned a, Just some snow. A lot higher profit because it, it must have been cheaper. Depending on how much they paid Bing now that we think of it. <laughs> uh, so Peter Ellenshaw uh, worked as a matte artist on uh, this film and Treasure Island. 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea got him a lifetime contract of work with <laughs> Disney. He uh, moved to the U.S. after this film, uh, and he would win an Oscar for Mary Poppins. He'd work on Old Yeller, Johnny Tremaine, uh, Swiss Family Robinsons, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, where he would get an Oscar nom, and it just like goes on and on and on and on. Oh, yeah. His mat work is impeccable. Yes. And he also did other stuff like that wasn't just credited as mat work, like special effects mm-hmm. and um, various other things. But he, like, a film of that time period of Disney films, he was involved probably somehow. Yeah. He was... I just love the days of, like, actual physical mats on set. Yeah. Like, looking at set photos and, oh, all that stuff you love from the movie, a guy painted that on glass. Yeah. And left a little hole for the actual real people behind it to be seen through in the distance. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) It's so cool. So he's really cool. Like, check out his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with that, we're going to go take a break. After the tale of Robin Hood and of his merry men, his like you are not like to see in all the world again. Welcome back, everybody. We are back, and we have important information. Yes. It was the Triple R Ranch so, that Spin and Marty were at. So I know all of you were furiously correcting us on, on social media, and we appreciate the engagement. There is one out. person out there who knew. <laughs> Knew what I was talking about. Uh, the Triple R Ranch. It stands for the Ranch, 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 Ranch. I was a big fan of the original Mickey Mouse Club, which is why we have to do a part two of this so I can eventually get to that. Anyways. Well, we're still on part two of part one. Okay. Uh, so next came 
Davy Crockett. King, King of the of- Wild Frontier. Yes, in, in 1955. His second appearance on the show, if you count the interstitial music, <laughs> in our supplemental Because Our Magic Kingdom episode ran so long. Yeah. This is an interesting film. Yeah. As I said, a lot of them like ended up on Disneyland. The, the television show. The television show. Davy Crockett was actually made for the television show. It was a three-part miniseries. Mm-hmm. And that aired from December 1954 to February 55. This came out in May 1955. <laughs> they had no intention of turning this into a film. Mm-hmm. But the miniseries was hugely successful. It was the biggest thing that they did. So like your image of kids in the 50s includes a coonskin hat. Davy Crockett's why. Right. It it sparked a craze. You know, other movies that I've already talked about, they had merchandise. They had, like, books and lunchboxes. This was a whole new level. Mm -hmm. This was furniture. This was clothing, comics, toys, everything that they could turn into Davy Crockett was there. (laughs) No, this is the second one we're talking about that had Disneyland attractions. Yes. Davy Crockett went to Disneyland and helped build it. Well. That was a photo op. Going to talk about that, actually. Oh, okay. I keep skipping ahead. That's okay. What I was going to say is that, yeah, when Disneyland opened in 1955 during the live TV broadcast, Davy Crockett and his best buddy Georgie were both there in character. (laughs) Disneyland, the TV show, premiered that October in 1954. So so Davy Crockett was very early It was only a couple months in. Right. Much of the programming that they were making for Disneyland the show was shot in color, even though TV sets, the majority of them at the time that were in households, did not accept color signals. Right. And this is because Walt knew where technology was heading, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before color was in wide use in TV sets. Yeah. One of those times his instincts were right. Yeah. Yeah. So everything they did was pretty much filmed in color, just broadcast in black and white. Davy Crockett was filmed in color. It was also shot in widescreen, mm-hmm. which was not be shown on TV. You know? It makes you wonder why. <laughs> they didn't have a plan of, like, turning into a movie, but a lot of this plan with the stuff for Disneyland, the show, was that eventually we will be rebroadcasting this stuff. Mm-hmm. When there's color TVs, when the technology changes. Like, I can understand predicting color TVs becoming much more popular. But widescreen broadcast, that didn't happen until, like, the early 2000s. Like, I feel like the West Wing was the tipping point for widescreen broadcast. I think it was kind of the idea of, like, (laughs) well, we can. So we might as well. And we'll just, you can turn widescreen into something else. You can't turn something else into widescreen. That's true. You know, like. You can, but then you show, like, uh, (laughs) boom mics and stand-ins on the side of the shot. Yeah, yeah. It did really well um, on Disneyland, and Disneyland was shown in the U.S. and Canada. It was not shown anywhere else. They're like, well, we have a great product on our hands. Mm -hmm. We should turn this into a film that we can show overseas and elsewhere. So they did that. And uh, they edited out 36 minutes of the original story's length, and it was released. And the response was huge. Well, then people were like, wait. There's a new Davy Crockett story, and it's in color and widescreen. We want to see it, too. So they released it into the U.S. They didn't quite market it as being just, like, the same story. It's that thing you saw, but bigger and with color in it. They didn't really 
usually like say that, but people also did not care. <laughs> it grossed over $2 million in the US alone. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about like half the people already saw this. Right, right, right. And they're really making it on the back end with the merch. Yes. Two more miniseries were made and broadcast in November and December of 1955. Now, those were actually prequels because Davy Crockett dies at the end of the first three. (laughs) Right. And I'm sure Walt was like, dang it, why'd we do that? Zombie Crockett, we need a sequel somehow. (laughs) So, prequels. Those were bundled into another feature film called Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, was, mm-hmm. which was released in 1956. He's got to do the keelboats. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Fez Parker played Davy Crockett, and he became absolutely known for be- playing a frontiersman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would continue to play Davy Crockett. He would appear as like other frontiermen, basically like Davy Crockett, and just a whole lot of other Disney films. Yeah. Uh, I think his career is almost like bigger than anyone else's in relation to Disney. And he could never wear real shoes. No. Now, this um, movie also had the song that we talked about, The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Yeah, yeah. This was used in the show and the films. Now, there were three versions that made the Billboard magazine charts in 1955. <laughs> three recordings of one song yes. all charted in the same year. Yes. Sometimes at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how popular. This kind of jumps ahead in the time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of jumping ahead to 1957. We're going to go back then and fill in the gaps. But another way that we can see this this show to film being used is with Zorro. You love Zorro. I love Zorro. <laughs> I love Zorro so much. They used to show the original Mickey Mouse Club mm-hmm. followed by Zorro on the Disney Channel yeah. when I was growing up. I love Zorro. So Zorro was a two-season, uh, seventy-eight episode with a couple hour-long specials. That's when season show. meant something, folks. Well, it's like Disneyland forty was, episodes a year. I think Disneyland aired twice a week. It was like a Tuesday Thursday show. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about two episodes a week, and it aired on Disneyland. So the show started in 1957. In 1960. The movie The Sign of Zorro was made. Now, it was a movie that was created out of uh, eight episodes from the first season. It was 176 minutes of film that was cut down to 91. Mm -hmm. And it played overseas and then sat for two years. (laughs) It was finally released in the U.S. after the show was canceled. The reason the show was canceled is there was a big dispute between ABC and Walt and who owned Zorro and the Mickey Mouse Club and Disneyland and, like... They ended up parting ways. <laughs> uh, but during that t- the dispute time is actually when these uh, specials aired. Mm-hmm. Now, second film, uh, Zorro the Avenger, was made using six episodes um, into a movie. And this was actually released um, in 1959. Um, and it was shown in Europe, but never in the U.S., and so every time somebody calls Captain America the first Avenger, <laughs> you can throw rotten eggs at the screen. Yeah. 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 I, I said so. The show was made first, and you made these movies, but some people have only ever experienced it as the movies, and it's really weird because it's like some of the same story, and it's the same people because it's the episodes. Yeah. But it's like a weird snippet of it. In 1992... Disney Channel colorized the series. It was all in black and white before then. And they ran it for 10 straight years. <laughs> Which is when I watched it. It's so good. It's so incredibly good. It's very adventuresome. 
no one else is Zoro. He is Zoro. <laughs> I need to not fangirl anymore. Uh, so in 1955, a movie called The Little Outlaw came out. The Littlest Outlaw. The Littlest Outlaw, yes. Uh, it was a story of a 10-year-old boy whose father was a cruel horse trainer, and he runs off with a horse and travels through Mexico. Does the him. horse talk? No. The horse should talk. He just talks to the horse. No, the horse should talk back. Uh, now, this film was shot completely in Mexico with a bilingual English-Spanish cast, and they filmed it twice, once in English and once in Spanish, uh -huh. so they didn't have to dub it, and they could release it directly to Spanish-speaking markets. Ah, Which is I pretty smart. Yeah. Just like, okay, we did it with English, great shot, let's do it again in Spanish, please. Let's, uh, let's keep up that same energy, and you have completely different words in your mouth. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be it. Real hard act because, like, the, the rhythm of the lines is never mind, <laughs> you know what I mean. I think I saw that movie years ago, like, I did not remember it. And then when I read like the description, I was like, I, rem I vaguely remember this, I like remember <laughs> the images of mm -hmm. it. So, in 1956, uh, we got The Great Locomotive Chase, which had sure the Fez, Fez Parker that's a heck of a title. Uh, it was about the Andrews raid during the Civil War, so let's steal a Confederate train and drive it north. Mm -hmm. uh, it did not do well. No? Probably because, you know, the actual story it's based on didn't end well and, like, half the people die. <laughs> not what you think about with a, a Disney family movie. Yeah, it doesn't, like, leave you like, oh, yeah, they did it. Like, no, like, <laughs> no, they, they, they did half not of do. them got captured and were, like, executed. <laughs> This, the ones that made it, they're like, yes, we honor you and all your friends that died. But those Sherman Brothers songs, oh, they didn't actually do one for no, us, did they? I okay. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting, like, was what I was saying in the first half with all the British produced films, mm -hmm. how very British they were. And now it's very, very American. Very Western. Like, yeah, the, the American frontier, colonial history, Civil War history. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, this time period of movies, because they are also very historical-based. Mm -hmm. We aren't making movies that are just about the 50s. We're, we're a long way from the parent trap. Yes. That comes, like, next decade, but yeah. Yeah. G going with this uh, Western theme, the mm -hmm. next movie was Westward Ho the Wagons. <laughs> the worst. They could just call it Westward Ho. Or ho the wagons? It's literally, westward ho the wagons. Westward wagons? With you an can, exclamation point. You can make a better title by taking out any combination of words. Well, it's... I mean, it's, westward ho is taken. I, I think that might have been out by now. And it's based on a children's book by the same name. And I was like, you could have changed it. <laughs> but guess who it starred? Who did it starred? Fez Parker. <laughs> um, it was also the last big screen appearance of George Reeves. Superman. Superman, yeah. Black and white serial Superman. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was the last uh, film he made. It also had four uh, Mouseketeers from the Mickey Mouse Club. Talent which, Farm. That's that's yeah. the model, yeah. Yeah. It's apparently about, like... Westward this, Ho the Wagons. Yeah, the, it's <laughs> all in the name. These, that's what you need The wagons is going west. But then, like... Of course, you know, they have to get attacked by Native Americans. Uh-huh. But then, like, the children end up befriending mm -hmm. um, a chief, and his son is, like, dying, and they're like, hey, we have a doctor. And so then the doctor, like, fixes him, and they're all like, hey, we'll help you get safe passage so those other Native Americans don't attack you. 
Children yeah. save the day through friendship. Eh. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's very 1956. Yep. I'll, I'll give it that. Yeah. Uh, so in 1957 came Johnny Tremaine. Your first crush, I think. <laughs> I don't know. There was Zorro. <laughs> He's a nice looking man. Very dreamy. I, I'm more of a sword in the rose kind of guy. <laughs> Zorro might have been the first guy that I was like, that is a dreamy man <laughs> at the age of like four. Wow. It's starting to murder me. <laughs> yeah, Johnny so, Tremaine, anyways. He was a very tan teenager. Zorro, Johnny Tremaine, <laughs> Fox Mulder. <laughs> Those are my four-year-old crushes. You tell me. Am I wrong? Jonathan Brandis. Will Whedon. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, Johnny Tremaine is also based on a children's book. The story of takes place in Boston years before the American Revolution and follows Johnny Tremaine and his involvement in the Sons of Liberty. And not too far before the revolution, it features the Tea Party. Yes. That, that's the we big... just like pop right into it. Yeah. And then he becomes a son of liberty and right. does all his stuff. It was directed by Robert Stevenson, who, just like everyone else, directed everything. <laughs> he did Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, like Old Yeller. He just did yeah. everything. That, um, that other one we watched last week with uh, Haley Mills? In Search of the Castaways. Yes. Yeah. Now, this one was made for TV with the plan, we are going to show this serialized. We are doing this, but we're <laughs> going to release it in theaters first. <laughs> it's the first one that was planned to be both. Yes. Okay. It was like, we, this is what we are doing with it, mm -hmm. because this has worked really well, so we are going to keep at it. Everything else was... Well, we have this movie, let's chop it up. Or we have these serials, let's stitch them together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, around the film's production uh, was when there was an intention to build a Liberty Street in Disneyland. Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't happen. And as we talked about probably in our Magic Kingdom episode, uh, there was a Liberty Square that was built and Magic Kingdom um, that was revived from that idea. About 15 years later. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So it has a connection to this movie. You can, mm -hmm. you can say like, yeah, there it, there is this, a Liberty Tree, and they keep tree. singing about that. Damn that thing Liberty in the Tree movie. song. I love that song. It's so good. <laughs> um, it's also in that earlier episode. <laughs> this had um, uh, Luana, who I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. "Song of the South." The guy who played Johnny Tremaine, uh, Hal Stallmaster, he didn't really. He had a very short career. Yeah. He he stopped making movies in 1966. Was he killed by Andy Warhol? No, he went on to have a very nice life. Oh, all right. Good. He lives with his wife and they had children and mm -hmm. there's nothing to say about him. Oh, you, that reminds me. You know what happened to uh, the kid that played Charlie Bucket in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? He went on to be on other movies? Not very many. He grew up to be a farm veterinarian. He births cows now. Yeah. And he's yeah. very happy. I got confused for a second. I was thinking of the, the newer he, one, and I was like, he's acting still. Oh, yeah. He's, like, he's in everything. He's, he's in that show with the doctor thing. That's right. He's So, Sebastian Cabot played uh, Jonathan Light. Uh, he's the rich guy that Johnny's like, here's this cup. It means I'm, like, related to you. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't believe him. Now, he did some uh, voice acting for Disney films. He was actually the uh, narrator and played Sir Ector uh, in Sword in the Stone. 
Oh, yeah. He was also Bagheera in Jungle Book. (laughs) And he narrated the four Winnie the Pooh adventures that came out at the time. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh that came out in 1977 was actually his last film because he died in August of that year. Oh. But, like, that narrator voice is such, like, an iconic part of those. Yeah. And then uh, in this film, we had also uh, Richard Baymore. Uh, This was his fourth film. Uh, He would also be known for playing Peter in the 1959 Anne Frank, uh, Tony in West Side Story, Benjamin Horn in Twin Peaks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was in this. So moving on, uh, we got Old Yeller in 1957, um, which is probably the most, like the second most known. No, I'd say number one. Old Yeller, like, has a life of its own beyond the movie. Old Old Yeller is a cultural touchstone of, for all time. That's a book, too. Yeah. I just mean, like... Nobody reads. This is America. Like, 20,000 Leagues and Old Yeller are the ones yeah, that, like, yeah. are this time period. I have nothing else to say about Old Yeller because it's a sad movie about dogs, and I just can't. <laughs> so we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going. <laughs> History yep. is told by those who write it, folks. We're, we're learning that today. I mean, eventually... If when I get to my like part two of the series, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the kid who played was in that movie, but not right now because yeah. we're not going to talk about bad dog movies. Uh- <laughs> Sad dog movies. <laughs> yeah, because no dog's bad. In 1958, we got The Light in the Forest, which was based on a novel of the same name, and I like had never heard of this movie, <laughs> and it very much ke- keeps with that Western frontier thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's about a white boy taken captive by a tribe, but then he gr- grows close to the people and takes on their culture as his own, and like... <laughs> it's Dances with Wolves for Kids? Uh, and then he's forced to leave when a treaty happens and has to go back to his blood relatives who he's like, you're not my family, uh, and it's just like, yeah. big struggle. I was kind of surprised by how like deep... I'd be interested in seeing this one, because these are not ideas without merit, but it's all in the execution. Yeah. Um, And then it, like, continues on with other, like, struggles of where he fits and him, like, really wanting to stand by his tribe and this culture that he he has become a part of. Uh, But then he does some stuff that makes them reject him Mm -hmm. and be like, no, you did stupid Go away. (laughs) Um. But yeah, all about the execution and uh, how yeah. that goes. Now, uh, James MacArthur plays the main guy, and he would be in Swiss Family Robinsons, because everyone's in Swiss Family Robinsons. It's a big family. And 259 episodes of Hawaii Five O. <laughs> that's a lot. I think <laughs> that's pretty close to all of them, I, I, would, I would guess. I think it's all of them. Uh, now, I want to talk about an actor who was uncredited but involved in this film and some other Disneyland programming. Mm-hmm. This is a guy by the name of Iron Eyes, Cody. Yes, the most famous Native American actor. Can you hear my air quotes? Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to talk about. He began acting in the early 1930s, and he said he was of Cherokee and Cree heritage. But his real name was Aspera Oscar DeCorti. One of those classic Cherokee slash Cree names. Uh-huh, and he played... Tons of Native Americans, like over 200 titles mm-hmm. he's appeared in. And he often appeared off screen in his everyday life with you know, beaded moccasins and fringed leather and very much like the... Oh, even like on on Sunday, like going to the grocery yeah. store, he would do yeah. this? 
Uh, and he he married a. He's the Rachel Dolezal of the fifties. <laughs> he married a woman who was Native American. They adopted two children who were Native American. Okay. Uh, and he spent. It doesn't rub off. His um, life uh, supporting many causes of Native American people. Mm-hmm. He can be heard chanting in a Joni Mitchell song. The Lakota song. Sure. Uh, he was used in the Keep America Beautiful PSA in the 1970s uh, that showed a Native American man crying. That's him. He's the man. He's the man. Uh, <laughs> Let's not say that too loud. Let's not say he's the man. <laughs> he's he's a man in a thing. In 1995, he was honored by uh, Hollywood's Native American community for his contribution to Native American causes. And they acknowledged the fact that he claimed heritage. But they knew he did not have it. Okay. But then in, in 1996, his half-sister came forward with, and records came forward that confirmed he was Italian-American and born in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And that apparently when he was a teenager, his father shortened his last name to Cordy. And then when he moved to uh, California, he was like, well, I'm going to go by Cody. And I'm going to change my image. And now I'm Native American? Okay, I don't want to keep riding this guy because apparently the a- actual Native Americans were like, we give you a pass for... Uh, pro- probably for not your, all of them. Not all of them. Not all of them. But this, this organization was like, hey, actions speak louder than bizarre appropriation. It's so weird. <laughs> but it's real weird. <laughs> I guess I should be glad that he used his weird life yeah. to... Try and and do things to better a community um, and things for a culture that he appreciated so much that he, he yeah. wanted to improve things and he wanted things to be recognized and he ill intent there in a lot of ways. But that yeah. it was with like, it seems like there was very much like a positive light he was trying to put on stuff. But if you respected but, dude, it that much, why would you do all this other right, stuff. Why right. would you be taking jobs from people with that, Native heritage? That, that right there. That right there. And why why would you live this lie 24-7? Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's so weird. It is so incredibly weird. And it's just, it's so bizarre to me that he also got away with it for so long. <laughs> right. And yeah. that then even when it came out, it was like still okay. In the mid-90s? Yeah. It's very odd. It's very strange. It's very odd. The, the 90s are a foreign country. It's <laughs> The world is, is fundamentally different now. Moving on. In uh, 1959 came uh, the Shaggy Dog film, mm-hmm. uh, which ended up being the most profitable film produced at the time by Walt Disney Pictures. And this really influenced uh, the films that were to follow. And the mm-hmm. change of movies being these period pieces, you know, westerns or, or, or British history or, you know, these very specific things mm-hmm. and switch things over to a different genre. We still had historical movies in the 60s and 70s, but the focus really came on a lot of movies being in the now. Yeah, contemporary settings with fantastical elements. Yes. The man becomes a dog. They got really, really into the fantastical and the supernatural. Mm -hmm. It became huge. That, I feel like, is part two, whenever (laughs) I get to it, is looking at that new world that we get to. Mm -hmm. Um, We we used up all of our old British men. 
Yes. So we have so we have a to new t- rotating cast. Yes, we had like child actors that got really big, but then I feel like there's a switch here that comes where we start getting the teen actors. Mm-hmm. The the once again your Annettes. The Annettes, the guy who's in Shaggy Dog, ends up uh, going on to make many other films. It's actually someone I really want to talk about. I was going to talk about him today, but saving it, saving it. Keep you all coming back for more. The sixties are coming. But yeah, you start to really dig into that teen heartthrob, teen golden girl that you want to like mm-hmm. get people to fan over. And I follow. do love to fan over the golden girls. Yeah, I know. But we we need to uh, end off the the decade with a couple more. And uh, in 1959, we also got Darby O'Gill and the Little People, which is a fun little, uh, I guess crossover of the two themes it, it's historically set it is about irish folklore yes and uh, uh and an irish man battling with leprechauns but yeah the the yeah. supernatural the fantastical yeah. i love darby o'gill it's really it is such it scared me so much as a kid that the <laughs> banshee bits at the end oh gosh like there's so much special effects in it mm-hmm. the thing that's really funny though with the special I'm... effects is that most of it is just like Force perspective. Um, yeah, an astounding amount of it is force perspective. That's like the ninety percent of it is so that. Most of the time, you will not believe this when you watch it, but most of the time, Darby and the little people are in the same spot, being shot by the same camera simultaneously. One's just really far away, and the 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 lengths they went to to match up the lighting and and the eye lines yeah. to sell it. Oh. I think it's even more mind-boggling and, like, impressive that that's how they did it mm-hmm. than any other type of, like, special effect thing. <laughs> because that takes so much planning and, right, like, right. In, like keen eye to know what you're looking for. And, like, the, the state of chroma key in 1959, this was uh, uh, an overseas production, so they would have used that word and not green screen, so meh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know but- if it was overseas. Well, there's that part in the episode of Disneyland where Walt is walking around graveyards in Ireland looking for actual leprechauns. So I'm pretty sure they had to film it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think this was filmed in the Burbank studio. But, <laughs> um, but the, the point is the green screen was so obvious yeah. in 1959. It just would have looked so cheap. Yeah. The guy who played Darby actually came out of retirement to play this part. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is also known for being the original Finian uh, on Broadway in Finian's Rainbow. And uh, he was in Brigadoon. So any musical where they need an Irish guy. Yeah, that was yeah. him. Uh, now, this is also uh, has Sean Connery in it. In my, yes. my favorite role oh of his of God. all time. Sean Connery almost does a different accent. <laughs> Half the time, he gets halfway there. He also has to sing. Yes. I guess, like, some of the songs are him and some of them aren't. But it's apparently the film that brought him to uh, the attention of people so he could be James Bond. Albert Broccoli really really loved it. Apparently. Apparently. Even if nothing else we say about this film, even if not, like, the special effects stuff, if nothing else entices you to watch this, you need to see Sean Connery in it. Um, Now, another thing is the actors that uh, played leprechauns were, like, not given any screen credit or uh, used in any, like... That's right. They're credited as actual leprechauns. Yeah. They also aren't used in any marketing materials because (laughs) 
Holt wanted it to be no. We we did. We caught. We have real leprechauns in our movie. We went to Ireland and we have real leprechauns. And look, in that Disneyland special, you, I caught one, so you guys can meet one. You headstrong old man. <laughs> Like, no, just tell people they're actors and they'll be just as impressed. They'll be even more impressed than finding out that, like, you you made a real human look tiny and then you found a leprechaun. That's wild. That's <laughs> the amount of disrespect. I mean, that D- Disneyland special about the filming of that was so weird because it is just him like, oh, look, I found one. I'm going to talk to the king of the leprechauns here. And And negotiate a contract. For them to appear in the film. (laughs) (laughs) So bizarre. The final, the final movie. The final movie of 1950. Was the third man on the mountain. A sequel to the first man on the mountain and the second man on the mountain. Uh, This was about a Swiss man conquering the mountain that killed his father. And it has apparently uh, inspired a lot of... (laughs) Who gave the mountain a gun? (laughs) Uh, It apparently inspired a lot of the design and theme of Matterhorn bobsled. The Matterhorn bobsled. The Matterhorn bobsled at Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Because it came out around that time. I think the story is he bought a, a postcard that showed the Matterhorn and like just wrote, build this and s- mailed it to the Disneyland team while they yeah. were like location hunting. Yeah. And then they like, you know, made this movie and it was like, well, we might as well tie it in some too. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the first tubular steel roller coaster. Now we're tying into the Cedar Point episode. There you go. <laughs> now, one thing I do want to point out. Uh, before we kind of end this episode, because we've ended this decade, one thing that Walt and these Disney films um, contributed to live action films, and not to say that they're the only ones doing it, they, they mm-hmm. started it, they have their mark on it, but they really utilize storyboards in live film in a way mm. that like hadn't been used to such an extensive way before. Yeah. So other people were using it, but it was always used it was completely used everything was storyboarded and it was to the the animation studio invented storyboard yes yeah and like there are notes that other filmmakers had like oh i'll borrow that for this or this or this the whole films were done this way it really mainstreamed their process of what they were doing it also um allowed you know walt himself to be involved and have creative control without having to be at the production yeah, places. Yeah. He had to he could oversee you could from where he m- was. Mail me the storyboards. Yes. Yeah. Especially now like how much that is used, like more so like yeah. storyboarding is used Basically now. every film. Yeah. Yeah. Um but that was something that they were doing in a huge way before mm-hmm. many others were. Zack Snyder draws his own storyboards. He's not the only director to do that, but he's the first one I know off the top of my head. Well, now, like, I know my (laughs) friends that were in, like, filmmaking in college, they had to take a storyboard in class. Yeah. Like, that that is just a part of the process now. Um, When it wasn't. They definitely, like, played with technology and storytelling ideas um, throughout their time. If we continue on this path uh, of of movies and Mm -hmm. time periods of movies, we'll see that, like... You know, even after, like, Walt's death, uh, live action films, like, continued, but then they diversified. Um, the 78 and 80s were very different. We got things like Tron, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, in the late 80s, a whole change of management came, and then we got the movies that we grew up with. Mighty Ducks, Newsies, Rocketeer. Oh. And we kind of they kind of rebranded mm-hmm. the t- style of movie they were again, which I yeah. feel like keeps happening because they've been making them for so long. There's a certain thing they're known for in each time period. Um, and it, that was it, also the time where they, like, remade classics as well. Yeah. Flubber, That how, Darn Cat, How many versions Freaky of Friday. the Shaggy Dog are there? There are so many. The there are com- a lot of sequels. The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes has too many versions, I think. Homeward Bound was a remake. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not. Yeah, there was original Homeward Bound. <laughs> Darlin', did you learn anything? Yeah. In this very long episode. <laughs> I learned that uh, I'm going to have fun on Monday. That's what I learned. Uh, <laughs> I got carried. I cut stuff. I love you, dear. <laughs> no, I I think it's interesting to see, like, all right, you, you talk about different regimes later uh, coming in with different styles of film. Mm-hmm. It's I think that all of them have their roots in this early period. Mm-hmm. Like, on, on the one hand, they're big special effects driven uh, blockbusters and like say Bruckheimer's Disney films Pirates mm-hmm. or there are these cutting edge pictures that are, that are redefining how we make movies like Tron and then really just like crowd pleasing family entertainment you know what you're getting you take the whole family out it, it's safe it's it's pleasant like say Mighty Ducks mm-hmm. Mary Poppins is all three of those yeah like <laughs> yeah and then yeah you do get the ones that kind of combine everything like yeah in in this period they were all the same thing mm-hmm. and maybe the sword and the crown is a little more to one side than the <laughs> other but <laughs> looking at like this decade too uh and even like the lead up before i feel like it's so interesting that like the shaggy dog is here like that is such a shift yes. in what they are making yeah yeah and it's so jarring. Like I actually like went back and was like, "Is that are accurate? Sure? Are we sure?" Really? This the the sixties very much switches. Yeah, in how they approach things and what they're doing. The live action division and the uh, animation studio follow kind of similar. Like if, if we were dropping in like check ins with and and here's when Lady and the Tramp came out, mm-hmm. there there would be some similarities. In, in just the way things were changing and yeah. the, the style of film as well. So it makes me wonder how integrated the teams were. Yeah. Like, obviously meeting at the top, but, like, how, how many rungs below Walt were they also, like, sharing uh, resources, sharing input? Yeah. One of the reasons I want to talk about this, too, other than the fact that I just like looking at Disney stuff, <laughs> um, is the fact, though, that, like, there are some of these movies you've never heard of. Yeah. 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 The majority of people have never heard of them. <laughs> I only know most of them, be like, the majority that I know because I was, like, I watched obsessively the late night, like, mm-hmm. children should be in bed Disney slots when they would show <laughs> the old movies. Yeah, yeah. And I think so much of it gets lost. Because mm-hmm. you think about, oh, yeah, you think about the animated movies. You think about, like, the big name, 20,000 Leaks. Yeah, everyone knows that one. Yeah, but Rob Roy, really? Like, yeah. they get lost. And I think it's really, it's such a mass, uh, a mass world, I guess, mm-hmm. of film and connecting things. Look, and There was a Disney Robin Hood before the one that made you a furry, okay? <laughs> know your roots. <laughs> we got to add him to your list of crushes, though. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Robin Hood the Fox. Everyone loves Robin Hood the Fox. But I'm more of a Simba person myself. All these films came out in 10 years. Yes. And like five animated films came out? Four? Four or something? Yeah. And and this was a productive time for feature animation compared to the 40s. Yeah. Financial troubles, the war again. The next, like the 60s and 70s, it's even more insane with the amount of um, live action over animated. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Just just a, a massive amount of the productivity. Yes. In terms of feet, if we want to yes. think like the Navy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Callback. Mm. <laughs> so that, we're going to take a break for a, a few days, yep. actually. Yep. So yeah, here come your letters. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, we have so much mail. So much. So you want to get right to it? Aaron sent us an email uh, answering a couple prompts. Favorite meat pie is uh, shepherd's pie. Cornish pasties being right behind. And for favorite Australian, uh, Peter Norman. Uh, Peter Norman is an Australian Olympian from the 1968 Summer Games in Mexico. Uh, He came in second in the 200 meter, uh, but is known for being the other guy on the podium when the two uh, American athletes uh, upraise their their fist. Yeah. Um, He was the guy not giving the black power salute. Yes. But he was wearing a, a badge for the Olympic Project for Human Rights, went on the podium in solidarity and to support the athletes, mm-hmm. and was blacklisted in Australia. Uh, he wasn't chosen for uh, the 72 Olympics. He was ignored in 2000 when the Olympics came to Sydney, not when, chosen for anything. When, as an American, I can tell you, at least over here... He's the most famous uh, Australian Olympian, maybe of all time, because of, of that yes. incident. incident. Yes, yeah. yes. He's got I mean, that. I, I don't know if that makes him more famous in, I don't know, Spain or anywhere else. But, but here. From the American perspective, yeah. Yes. He uh, eventually did get an apology from Parliament uh, about the way he was treated, but it came after he died. Mm-hmm. As a lot of times that happens, which sucks. Yeah. My, my favorite detail from uh, his actions in 68 is that he went up to the other two athletes, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, and is like, okay, I want to I wanna help. Should I do the fist salute or should I not? Wh- which would help more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you take the lead. Tell me how I can support you. Yes. Yes. Which is a great move of yeah. what can I do to better this? For sure. Yes. So that's a great pick, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, James wrote in to talk about our current prompt, favorite live-action Disney film, and uh, decided to go grab bag because, at least uh, nowadays, Mm -hmm. Disney has their hands in a whole lot of jars. Yes. So, uh, favorite Marvel movie, Iron Man 3. Favorite Star Wars movie, Rogue One. Favorite Muppet movie, The Muppets, 2011. Uh, Favorite original Disney movie, Sky High, about a high school for superheroes. I never saw that one. <laughs> James also wants to correct my pronunciation of serial killer Ed Gein's name. Thank you very much. As well as sharing a uh, personal connection. Uh, James's dad's friend 
was a prison guard who had a conversation with a prisoner that turned out to be Ed Gein. And, and when he found that out later, uh, some of the words exchanged took on a, a more sinister uh, tone. Yeah. 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 Thanks, James. Uh, Final Gamer answers the favorite live-action Disney prompt with uh, Maleficent, a Mm. film they did not expect to enjoy, and I did not expect to enjoy it either. But you did. I did. Uh, I was (laughs) really pleasantly surprised by it, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I agree with uh, Final Gamer that it has a really interesting alternative interpretation on a villain that we know and had some interesting relationships with other characters. It was a fun twist. Yeah. um, And it was engaging. Spoiler alert, skip 10 seconds or whatever. I appreciate how it came out very near Frozen. And so there's this like one-two punch of the real fairy tale true love is familial love. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert over, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also... So get a thank you for doing an Australian episode. Yay. Yay. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for writing in Final Gamer. Yeah. Claire Tick uh, writes in, and she did not realize how many of the films she watched as a child were produced by Disney until she did a little research to answer the prompts. Yeah. There's a <laughs> lot. That's what we learn in this episode. Yeah. Just in the 50s. But her favorite is either George of the Jungle starring Brendan Fraser which I did not know was Disney produced oh, until yeah. like your letter. <laughs> oh, I totally that like yeah. they had like toys it, and sponsorship crossover it things. It was a and long whatnot. time ago. I forgot. I guess or Tron, George of the Jungle for uh, just how goofy and madcap the comedy is. As I haven't watched it in forever, but as a child who also enjoyed the cartoon, I thought, yeah, they nailed it. This is as non-sequitur and really bad pun-based as I want my George in the Jungle media to be. I have, I guess, a very unpopular opinion that I hate George of the Jungle. <laughs> I also, but I also have a dislike for Brendan Fraser that is apparently very unpopular, so I'll just go hide his, in a corner. His recent uh, GQ interview really turned people around on where Brendan Fraser's been coming from for the last 20 years. As a person. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. I don't like his acting. Okay. That's, that's, it's, that's, that's me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Other pe- I get it. I get it. Uh, but Tron, for its aesthetic and, and being so groundbreaking in the use of computer graphics, so groundbreaking that as the story goes, it was ignored for the uh, uh, special effects Oscar because special effects engineers thought it was cheating. That doesn't count. They're, they're, that's not what special effects is. Thank you very much. And now look where we are. Yep. Yeah. So thank you very much, Claritic. Lord Smath sent us an email. And favorite live action would be Saving Mr. Banks and Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland is great. I love Tomorrowland. I love Tomorrowland. Uh, and then comes uh, 2000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, Return to Oz, Rocketeer, George of the Jungle, uh, most of the Muppet movies, that one Herbie movie with Bruce Campbell, uh, and an evil version of Herbie, and thinks that's it. That's that's enough. That's I mean, a good that's a good variety. I like I like that it's it has that, a little bit of everything. And it would take you at least two days to watch all that. So, <laughs> especially yeah. most of the Muppet movies. Yeah, uh, I mean that's one day right there. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Lord Smath. <laughs> 
one fine cat uh, writes in for the first time. Nice to have Hello. you. With a sort of grab bag catch up of prompts. Favorite ad, uh, the E-Trade Don't Get Mad, Get E-Trade series. Favorite sports moment, Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. Uh, to hear more about that, go back to the episode we did, inspired by that game uh, uh, on the history of the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. Th- their weirdest family tradition is a recent one where their mom's side of the family watches gangster movies every Thanksgiving. Nice. But uh, also the uh, dawning realization as you get older, how many of the the songs for Passover are drinking songs disguised as something else. That sounds awesome. (laughs) I wish I was secretly finding out, like, I don't know, Christmas carols or drinking songs. But we don't have those. No, Christmas carols are just uh, cover-ups for riots. Uh, in, yeah. in Victorian times, I want I want some holiday drinking songs that yeah. don't sound like drinking songs. <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, favorite futuristic idea: regenerative medicine. Favorite superhero: Superman. That is not a bad answer. That's a great answer. It's my answer. We agree. One fine cat. Be proud of your answer. They also like the teen learning to use superpowers archetype. Things like Batman Beyond, and again, the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle. A lot of our listeners like Jaime, and that's cool. Favorite historical dog, Balto. Favorite movie production trivia, Sebastian Shaw uh, was a Shakespearean actor uh, around the 80s, and listeners would probably recognize him as the the doughy guy inside the helmet at the end of Return of the Jedi when when Vader's death scene. His presence, his whole role was a big secret kept from everyone but the bare minimum. I, I guess using techniques they learned with the I am your father line. Yeah. And he was contractually forbidden from telling anybody anything, including his own family. Now, as a Shakespearean actor working in England, he was pretty good friends with Ian McDarmid, the emperor. So, like, they, they met up on set. Ian's like, hey, what are you doing here? And Shaw says, I don't know. Uh, I Bye. Uh, <laughs> Turn, turn around, walked away, filmed a scene, and then uh, I, I guess after uh, the premiere, Ian McDermott's like, ah, there we go. Now I know now why. I know. Uh, favorite prophecy. The prophecies in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis are pretty great. But in general, prophecies in ancient Judea were wild, including uh, the prophet who dragged a live goat to the gates of a neighboring city, ate it raw, and proclaimed, As I have devoured, there will be a devouring. Dang. The minor prophets, if you just read them straight through, they're very repetitive, but some of them get wild. Yeah. Favorite alien, Superman again. Nice. Followed by the doctor as portrayed by David Tennant. Nice. Favorite animal fact or facts. Uh, The mantis shrimp, the smasher mantis shrimp, hunt by punching their prey with their claws. With an acceleration of 10,400 Gs. They go from zero to 51 miles per hour instantly and flash boil the water in front of them. Also, lobsters do not age in any of the recognizable ways. They don't slow down or weaken or become less fertile. The limitation on their life is size. Eventually, they grow so big that the energy it takes to molt in order to keep growing uh, leads to death by exhaustion. (laughs) Oh, poor lobsters. They they grow to death. 
Also, the scaly foot gastropod is covered in armor made from poisonous iron sulfates found in the thermal vents on which it lives on the ocean floor, strong enough to resist diamond-tipped indenters because it evolved to resist the onslaughts of our second interesting snail, the cone snail, which fires venomous harpoons from its own teeth. What the hell? These are some snails I do not want to meet. No. 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 Also, got a note that uh, they'd be at C2E2 on Saturday. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't know if we met. If we did, you did not introduce yourself with this name. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Oops. But hope you enjoyed the show. I, I guess I'll just mention it now because it came up in a letter. These letters are being recorded on the Sunday of C2E2 after we got home from the show, yeah. took, took a nap, ate a meal. Yeah. Had uh, some good uh, tacos. Not tonight, but soon, we'll be recording our annual Trip Report podcast. Yes. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, Sam sent us an email uh, and thanked us for recommending Devil in the White City. Uh, and thought it was fantastic. You're Just got welcome. done uh, listening to it. And is answering a couple earlier prompts. Uh, favorite musical based on real life events, Les Mis, although Hamilton is growing. They also wanted to give a shout out to the recent opera Silent Night about the Christmas truce of 1914. Everybody's making stuff about the Christmas truce lately. Yeah. Favorite thing from 2016, Sam got to play Curly in Oklahoma. Aww. And also got a perm out of this. That's not such a beautiful morning. <laughs> uh, favorite thing from 2017, uh, got to music direct their first play, which was Grease, uh, and got really into fitness and had some good things come from that. So congratulations on that. Congratulations on meeting your fitness goals. Uh, and favorite live action Disney film, uh, the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean films. I saw the second one first with you. You hadn't seen the first one yet? I had not seen the first oh. one when you took me to see the second one. Huh. Yeah. I must have gone to see the second one multiple times then. Oh, yeah, you did. Because I... Because you went with Louise Well, yeah, we went to a midnight showing in costume, mm -hmm. and people took pictures with us. <laughs> <laughs> and that was back, kids, when you had to actually, like, show up at the theater and wait in line for, like, five hours for your seats because you couldn't buy tickets ahead of time, and there was no assigned seating. <laughs> so thanks, Sam. Kieran writes in to tell us about uh, their favorite Australian. This is Kieran with a K. Yes, it's a different one. <laughs> different Kieran. This is a story that also becomes a, a connection to a Chicagoan of note. Ooh. But the favorite Australian uh, of which we speak is the Honorable King O'Malley, MP. Uh, O'Malley was a uh, silver-tongued rapscallion of an insurance salesman in the 1800s, so I'm not saying he was a murderer. Probably. I'm just saying he might have been an accessory to murder. <laughs> uh, he, he eventually made his way to Australia, saying that uh, it was to improve his health after a tuberculosis diagnosis. Others said it was to avoid embezzlement charges. We'll let uh, uh, history decide. Oh, wait, that's us. Uh, <laughs> he, he told the story that uh, when he arrived in Australia, he, he lived in a cave and was nursed to health by an aborigine named Kuwanga and then walked 1,300 miles to Adelaide. <laughs> Or maybe he was avoiding embezzlement charges. Let's let's just put that out there. Eventually, he turned to politics, being elected in South Australia in 1896, uh, after claiming he was actually born in Quebec so that he would qualify as a British citizen. 
He never provided any proof for that claim, but he was still elected for the first federal parliament of Australia for the division of Tasmania. So who's asking? That's what I want to know. Huh? Huh? In 1910, he was in charge of planning for the new capital and established an international competition to design uh, what would become that capital city, Canberra. And the person he found was Marion Mahoney Griffin of Chicago, Illinois. She was the second woman to ever graduate from MIT. Uh, she graduated with a degree in architecture. She was the first employee ever hired by Frank Lloyd Wright, man, woman, or otherwise. Uh, she has a, a long list of notable buildings to her name, although many of those buildings uh, have men's names applied to them instead. She, along with uh, her husband, who she met working for, for Wright, uh, created this plan with exquisite watercolor paintings in order to communicate their vision for, for the planned city of Canberra. And O'Malley was struck by these drawings and paintings, which are still on display at the National Library if you happen to find yourself in Australia. And so this insurance salesman from Kansas slash Quebec was working with a pioneering woman architect from Chicago and her husband to make this capital city uh, what it is today. And closing this letter, Kieran provided a quote from a book on Marion that I'm going to read as well, because I agree, it's good. Uh, after Walter died in 1937, Marion wanted to make at least one last visit to see Canberra, the city she and her husband had created. She had one last wish. She wanted to see the view from the summit of Mount Ainsley, the view she had imagined so intensely on a cold Chicago winter almost 30 years before. She drove up the winding hill to the top of the mountain. She looked down at the city that she and her husband had designed and saw— a young city and all its suburbs laid out on the ground before them, beautiful scenery and the background of mountains, streets constructed, splendid tree plantings evergreen and blooming, with street lights in all, parliament house and other government buildings, several residential centers fairly occupied, residences, shops, theaters, but she knew it was still unfinished. The spot today is named for her as Marion Mahoney Griffin Lookout, and it's the best view in the city. So thanks, Kieran. Verse sent us uh, an email with favorite Disney live action movie as The Black Hole. Ooh, that's a classic. Yes. The 70s? Uh, <laughs> but yes, Black Hole, The Black Hole. It's very strange, strange film, um, but a classic. So check it out if you haven't yet. Uh, thank you, Verse. Daniel tried to answer the current prompt of favorite live action film. It doesn't really have one because like... Uh, Empire Strikes Back is pretty great and is a Disney-owned film now, but when it was made, it was an independent production. Yes. And the the and Lion King on Broadway is great, but that's a live stage show and not a movie. Yeah. And Daniel really enjoyed Hook, but while it might seem like a 90s Disney movie, it was it's produced by Amblin and TriStar, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think The Lion King is, like, what you're going to go with there, because, like, the stage production is based off the movie. Yeah. It's very similar in a lot of ways. It's got the same music for the most part. I'm sure you could find like a bootleg DVD, and so that's technically a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but Daniel's favorite Australian is former Prime Minister Bob Hawke. 
uh, who came to national prominence in his career for raising the minimum wage in 1959, a successful uh, campaign, which uh, was part of his path to becoming president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. And then from there, federal president of the Labour Party. Eventually, after time serving in both of those positions concurrently, he decided to stand for federal election in 1980, and then challenged for leadership of the Labour Party in 83. Meanwhile, the leader of the opposition saw that there was this uh, rift within the Labour Party and called for an election in order to consolidate power in the face of that. What he did not know is that Hawke had already come out on top of that power struggle just a few short hours before, and with a unified front, took the prime ministership. <laughs> and from that position, he introduced Medicare, Landcare, uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, the Family Assistance Scheme, Superannuation, and a new national anthem, all from the office of Prime Minister Hawke. He started trying to open uh, regular and normalized relationships with China in the 1980s until uh, the Tiananmen Square protests and, and uh, vicious crackdown, and he dropped it all and condemned uh, and condemned the Chinese actions against the protesters and uh, granted 42,000 permanent visas to Chinese students uh, studying in Australia who may have been afraid to go home. Then we got a picture of a dog. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good dog. Yeah. Also, Daniel is descended from a transported convict. He was an Irishman who was imprisoned for lanterning, uh, which is the charge of standing on a seaside cliff at night with a lantern, tricking ships into running aground, and then looting the wreck. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that a bit in the yeah, uh, yeah. Great Lakes shipwreck. That'll or get great, you... Great, the piracy. Yeah. The pirate episode. That'll get you life in, in Australia, I think. So thanks for the letter, Daniel. Rebecca sent us an email and answered uh, a couple prompts. First being favorite court case, mm -hmm. which you seem to know about. Yeah. This one. This was a thing. Uh, it, it was a meme, you might say. The the court case where a man on trial for murder starts trying to represent himself is very upset with the lawyer he is dismissing, not providing documents on discovery he thinks he's entitled to. And then the man and the judge begin cursing at each other in very vulgar ways. And as you read through the transcript, it's it becomes very hard to tell which one is the worst person. Uh, that then got a, a dramatic reading from the, the cast of Rick and Morty, which is when it, it really caught fire and got linked to a thousand places. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite food of all time uh, for Becca is pumpkin pie. Likes pies a lot. <laughs> Shepherd's pie, pot pies, uh, quiches, cream pies. Fruit pies, but apple pie is really good. Yeah. And, yeah. and apparently vegetable pie, two thumbs up. Carrot pie. There aren't a lot of vegetable pie. pies. No, there's really not. There's just pumpkins and sweet potatoes. Like vegetable pie, like if you quiche. I consider that an egg pie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what about all those, like, jello pies of the 60s where mm -hmm. you just put, like, olives and celery in strawberry jello? I consider that a crime. <laughs> and also, uh, Rebecca had a couple questions for us. So first one's for you. Yeah. Uh, Cedar Point sounds like a pretty cool place, but is it worth going to if you hate roller coasters? What else is there to do? 
Well, Rebecca, let me tell you, you have to like rides. You don't have to like roller coasters, but you have to like rides. Uh, we we did mention they hold the world record for most rides in yes. a park. Yes, there's a water park. And then they have like basically every carnival ride you would want. <laughs> and other there's like some kiddie rides and slower rides and like... Some live entertainment. Some, yeah. I would say you have to be a fan though of rides. They don't have to be roller coasters, but mm-hmm. you have to like riding things if you don't <laughs> like that yeah like don't go there for the shows i think they have two they, they do exist yeah there's there's a there's but, a handful but it's not like disney it's not like no. you can just go watch shows all day mm-hmm. yeah and then the other question was for me uh what the heck is a shirt waist is that like a cummerbund no it, it was the name for a particular style of of ladies blouse that was popular at the time, especially for working ladies. Like, shirtwaist factory workers would have been wearing shirtwaists, well, actually. I think uh, in that time, it's really, like, the plain white blouses that would be worn with the high-waisted skirts of the time. Yes. That's, yes. It's just a blouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you very much. And that's all of our letters for, for this episode. Yeah. If you would like to send us an email, where can those go? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com and you can answer a prompt. Darling, do you have a prompt for yeah. our wonderful listeners? For our next episode, I'm curious what our wonderful listeners' favorite assassin is. <laughs> What's your favorite assassin? That seems like a question I would ask. Well, you didn't. I would, except mine would be like, what's your favorite assassination? <laughs> I'm all about the human element. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so again, uh, answers to those prompts or questions or stories or feedback or, or anything you might like yeah. read on the air, those can go too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And while you're out there, why not give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on wh- wherever else you found us. Yeah. Uh, it, it helps so much to, to keep us in some rankings, keep us in people's recommendations, and, and then we, we grow and blossom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also tell a friend. You can tell people you meet. Like, you could be like us, where we went to a comic convention and we're like, we hey, told people, lots of people. You should listen to our podcast. Oh, you're talking about history? You should listen to our podcast. Yeah. Are we talking about Archie Comics? You should listen to our podcast. <laughs> if you found us because we were uh, being friendly and glad handing around C2E2, shoving business cards in your hand. I hope you enjoyed this show. They're usually not this long, but you can see that if you're like looking at iTunes or whatever. I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this was a good one and, and worth the time. We had fun with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and thanks for checking us out. Uh, but yeah, just a reminder, look for that uh, bonus episode just like last year. We, we're really going to have fun with that, but need a lot more energy than we have right now. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.